one. Yumi Sakuma, lovely to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a real like pleasure. It's really exciting to get you on the show because there's so many things that probably you and I really want to talk about, about what's happening in the world right now and what that means culturally. Uh, you and I are both people who um, kind of have spent our life in split um, cultures, Asian culture and Western culture. So I feel like, yeah, we have a lot in, in common in some way. Um, but yeah, like for folks who out there who, who don't know about you, can you please tell us about you, yourself and your career and how you started? Yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. All right. Um, my name is Yumiko. Yumi. Uh, I'm a New York-based writer slash producer. Um, I write stories about culture, fashion, um, you know, how to spend our money, how to be conscious about our living, um, you know, ethic, being ethical, sustainable, all that stuff. I also produce, um, I don't produce, I don't make products, but I produce um, shoots, fashion shoots. I help um, making catalogs, uh, fashion stories in the magazine. I do all of that as well. That's a lot of boxes. I like yeah, people I who are multi-skilled. Yeah. I feel like, I... I feel like today, like, um, in the past, like being multi-skilled and being in so many boxes was considered like a stupid thing to do. But nowadays we have the freedom to do so many things that we love. Yeah. We also diversify our income. Yeah. Which could be a very good thing, um, especially in a time like this, you know. Absolutely. Um, so... You grew up in Japan, for people yes, who don't know, yeah. and now you've been living in the States um, for more than, what, two decades? Um, I started, I moved here in 96, and I moved to New York in 98, so I've been here for more than 20 years. Yeah, so you're a real true... New Yorker then I would consider you. <laughs> um part of Hey, okay, after you could be a New Yorker. Yeah. You have that like tough don't mess with me vibes that New Yorkers <laughs> have. <laughs> I feel like yeah. New York is probably a very good character building toughness uh exercise for a Jap young Japanese woman. Yeah, especially in the 90s, you know, late 90s, um, things were a lot rougher. Mm. And people weren't gentle. I feel yeah. like New Yorkers have become a lot more gentle over time since I moved there. Um, and I look young, so I had to like, you know, I had to like, look tough and I lower my voice a lot but 
then I like people don't give me hard time. Yeah. I find that um I find the same in Paris. Um a lot of women a, a lot of Parisian women who grew up this, their whole life in Paris have this really tough outer shell and a deep tough voice to show the world like don't mess with me <laughs> kind of thing and definitely that rings true to New Yorkers as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I I used to I started to smile a lot more I just I realized you know back then I don't think I was smiling I was you know I was <laughs> trying to piss off the time Grumpy and pissed off. That sounds really tiring. <laughs> it was kind of tiring. Right. Yeah. I, I like, I, I like, I used to love, you know, New York used to be a different place for sure. And it was beautiful in a lot of ways. But I also like that New York has became more of a place of community. Mm. Yeah, you can let your guard down a little bit sometimes. For sure. It's like I think of it as a gigantic neighborhood. Yeah, that's really lovely. Um, I think that I I can draw parallels when I started my business. <laughs> I, I thought that in order to be a woman and to own a fashion business, I had to be tough and I had to be the B word like a bitch because people wouldn't take me seriously manufacturers would walk all over me and like especially when I started my business um, wholesaling in Japan and people wouldn't take me seriously because I was this young like girl people would call me a girl and like yeah I felt like I had to be this tough person which bummed me out because I don't want to be that that fake persona just to do a business and like to do something that I love and gradually I realized like you know what <laughs> like <laughs> I can be myself it's fine um, I, I work with people who respect me I choose not to work with people who don't respect me and then you find that happy medium did yeah. did you find a happy medium in New York? Yeah, I mean, I started to, I mean, I definitely went through that phase where I had, I felt like I had to look tough to be taken seriously. But like you said, it's very tiring to keep pretending to be somebody else. Yeah. And eventually I feel like I you know, found my voice and back and I started to feel more relaxed mm. and I um gained some confidence that I used not to have. Yeah. And I feel a lot more comfortable these days just being who I am. Mm. Well, like um your work you've done work on the role of women in in the workplace and in being um you know higher up figures in industries like 
do you see a big cultural difference between um, like Asia, the Asian workplace culture um, and the Western like Americanized work culture of how women are viewed and treated? Um, you know, I feel like I've been very lucky to be surrounded by people who wouldn't say offensive things in terms of sexism and ageism and, you know, all kinds yeah. of stuff that we don't like. But I've, I'm very familiar with the culture where, you know, I've been in a meeting where I've, right. I've been in the <laughs> right. I've been in the talk. Um, I've done a lecture where ninety nine percent of the audience is male in suits where women aren't given the same opportunities as or women having to deal with things that men don't have to deal with, or they have to work harder to prove themselves. Mm. Um, there are all sorts of hurdles for a woman. And um, it's really important for me to share what I see mm. in New York or in America where, you know, um, bigger community, international community, how women are making advances and saying no to status quo and being being vocal about supporting other women and other minorities. And also like share my experience as a woman my voice I want my my ultimate goal is to encourage women and young Japanese people to find their voice and find their passion and experience the same exciting things that I have experienced mm. yeah well this idea of sharing perspective is so important for for a writer but to me it's so important to share different um, points of view um, across cultures across genders races because that's how we have we can develop empathy and compassion for different people um, I've seen especially uh, you know in the last five years this um, a big postmodern like female empowerment movement which is wonderful I think it's been it's been great to um, share our experiences together and voice um, voice our needs and opinions um, on a you know on, on a bigger platform but at the same time there have been big corporations who've used this as like some bullshit CSR um, campaign which has really like devalued 
our authenticity and and our cause um, when you have like inauthentic um, you know just inauthentic reasons for for voicing a certain opinion um, and these are big companies especially in the fashion industry uh, and sportswear industries like Nike for sure Nike have have used this um, as their um, sales point of sales for a long time and it really like gets under my skin because once you once the world is oversaturated with a particular um, you know cause like um, female women's rights and once that's slapped on billboards on buses on you know saturated on the internet it loses its power and people start brushing it off and people feel like especially men feel almost overwhelmed and in in a sense they feel like bad people for for a culture that's been built you know that's developed since the beginning of mankind so to villainize men is to me um, not being the right approach at the same time do you have any opinions on this idea as well yeah it's, um i feel like it's a thin line that we have to walk yeah. on because the f word is so polarizing Obviously, I support feminism in with all my heart, mm. but it also has invited backlash in a lot of divisions. Mm. And hmm, how do you how do you say it? without it's polarized people it's really polarized people and in my opinion it's because it, of this inauthentic voice and it's been used for the wrong reasons like selling cheap it has become a marketing strategy yeah and right? pe people are not stupid they right. think they sense when something is just is not authentic is not it's fake Right. No, for sure. And and I feel like today the biggest question is how do we get truthful information anymore? Right. Um, it's always like a little tricky to tell. It's all, you know, the, the way to communicate this has become so hard because everybody's so sensitive. Mm. And um, people are so ready. To judge each other. And, you know, when somebody disagrees with you, it's not easy to react to it without thinking it through and the conversation becomes an argument mm. and I always have a hard time 
you know, I'm I'm on Twitter and I'm pretty vocal about things. And I try to understand I it's it's very difficult to keep the empathy when somebody's coming at you mm. with a certain point of view and then you become a person that you don't want to be. Mm. And that happens all the time. And I'm sure it happens on Facebook. But that's the nature of, of this like online discourse at the same time. People, yeah. people have this knee-jerk reaction to things. And for some reason, a comment, a comment on social media is received like an attack on their personal existence, <laughs> which is just like people need to chill out, really. Right. right. <laughs> right. I mean, you had, you had an experience of coming forward with your experience. Yeah, I mean, I... I tread this fine line because like I own a business like but also I feel like it's really important to voice my opinion because that's a big that's the identity that my business is quite a selfish artistic endeavor and I feel like my opinion is very important um, well to to find inspiration and to run my business um, so there's this tread fine line but obviously like touch wood I don't get so much like you know hate on the internet um, but when I do like I really I don't engage with it on the level that I would take it as like a, a personal attack on my existence like you know people haters gonna hate you know let them vent like this is the internet and I think it's important to keep this this dialogue online and not to delete these comments and to let other people see them as well and, and let that conversation blossom and turn into whatever it wants to be. I think censoring this kind of discourse is like a bad idea. And I think that's why like it scares me when, when social media platforms are, are deplatforming certain extreme, um, extreme voices on the far left and right. We need these voices so that so that people can see the full spectrum of opinion um, and make their own choices, you know. Which brings me actually to um, how how you have seen different countries react to this coronavirus issue. Obviously, um, it's the states, you know, especially New York right now is a oh, it's a very <laughs> very um heavy place right now um the pandemic is worse in in new york um compared to many countries um all over the world and on the other hand japan um has has been dealing with the virus since at least since january a lot longer than um the western world like do you see any um vast differences in the way that like trump and shinzo abe have been dealing with the pandemic and this is not to say that one one person got it more right than the other but there are vast <laughs> cultural differences we're talking about here and nobody's exactly. perfect i mean if i was to make a ranking of the world 
leaders handling of coronavirus um two of these gentlemen would be at the very low <laughs> of it. and there's a lot of peril um they mm. were largely in denial in the beginning mm. they were still acting like you know if they hope hard enough the virus is go away that um in terms of people's handling you know i think both new yorkers and japanese have inspired me in terms of the kindness mm. and empathy that people can show to each other um and they have impressed me with ways that people can unite and make things happen mm. i think we're sort of faced with this new reality that's been actually kind of true for a while but this renewed idea that governments lie mm. and that we have to rely on ourselves to protect ourselves mm. and right information and right knowledge mm. be the key yeah and uh, you know all around the world we've seen the ways the governments have completely failed their people in so many places so you know it's a very difficult time not only we've seen um so many lives being lost we're seeing massive wave of misinformation and conspiracy theories and yeah. um all that which is wild so wild so wild <laughs> it's unfolding in front of us um you know the a business thing and but I find myself contradicting with with what the government's telling people yeah you know and it's been that way I was in Japan up until March 2nd and I just kept thinking like this could not be true this could not be true it's true that in Japan in general a lot of habits that people live by like taking off your shoes or washing your hands a lot of people always wore masks mm. around this the year um you know a lot of people are germ folks and that's being apparently slow but now we came to the point where there um where that's not enough yeah. and it's scary and that to see the government not doing everything that they could do to protect their people is heartbreaking yeah 
both in the United States and in Japan. Yeah, absolutely. I think in all of this, um, what's been so apparent is like actually the actual role as a role model that mm -hmm. the government is supposed to have on the people um, to show the right way to do things to you know to wear masks when you are asked to wear masks when you're visiting a, a hospital um, to you know to to make sure that there are prevention med like means of disease control prevention um, to have the systems in place for the people and what's interesting is um, I, I was in France and up until um, early March um, and then I came to Thailand and now I'm Thailand has closed its international travel so I can't go back home to France but it was really interesting to see um, a stark difference between the different attitudes between Thai culture and French culture. So I was shooting my lookbook in Thailand in late January and already um, Thais in late January were preparing, were already prepared for the virus. Um, everybody was temperature checking um, before you enter any building. Every single person is wearing masks and hand gel and all that stuff. And when I came back to France in late January, like nobody, like it was almost like, oh, this is the Asian disease that surely like us in the developed world could surely never contract because it's some kind of far away distant um, <laughs> disease that affects, you know, like a certain demographic of people and like people were just going just going on with their business like nothing was wrong and actually where I live in France it's it's quite a remote relatively remote area in the countryside it became the epicenter of the French infection um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because where I live is um, there's a lot of um, factories and um, there was a team of factory um, employees who went to Italy to visit their, I don't know, sister factory or something and contracted the disease in Italy and brought it back to my um, hometown in France and the, it spread so fast because people did not they were still in disbelief that it was actually immediately on their doorstep and um yeah like i would i would i took the train once um and i was wearing a mask because i'm not only protecting them from myself but myself from everybody else no, people would look at me like I was some dirty, evil person because I was wearing a mask. My husband, who who is also half Asian, he's way more extreme than I am. He's wearing a mask no matter what, even gloves when he went to the supermarket. And people were looking at us like we were the scum of the earth. Um, and, you know, the the disease spread the virus spread so fast in all across Europe um, but thankfully um, 
in France at least there is such a strong social uh, support system that um, people compared to many other countries people who live paycheck to paycheck um, have the support financial support and medical support by the government whereas in Thailand coming back to Thailand um, people don't already don't really trust the government they pretend that they do but they really don't and right. <laughs> and um, and also there are so many people in Thailand who live hand-to-mouth who cannot afford to be sick or be out of work because that means starvation um, so people are so much more proactive in in taking care of themselves and one another but there is still an elite one percent group of one percent one percenters in Thailand who believe that they are wealthy enough to be immune to the disease and and behave in a certain way that reminds me of um, it feels very untie uh, but yeah do you, did you like yeah. observe this kind of difference yeah, also? It was, it was kind of crazy because I kept like close eyes on what was going on because I knew that I would have to make some adjustments to my plans in my last trip was I was going to Taipei for a few days to Bangkok. And when I decided to cancel both of those trips, I told my friends in Taipei that I wasn't coming. And they said, oh, it's probably a good idea because, you know, Japan at the time was in the top three countries of in, the, in terms of numbers of cases. And so they said, oh, it's probably a good idea. You know, people might not want to see you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I told my friends in Bangkok that I wasn't coming. And they were like, what are you overreacting? Like, what are you overreacting to? Like, it's fine. People are traveling. And I was like, what? <laughs> but I canceled them anyways. And I stayed in Japan for a couple more weeks. And I came back. And the whole time I was looking at this in York that indicated there was no one who was infected. And I kept thinking this could not be true. Mm. There's a large Chinatown. People travel like crazy in and out. Mm. This could not be possible. And then so I came back. Nobody was wearing masks. Yeah. And I was told that I shouldn't be walking around with a mask because there has been some cases of Asian women being assaulted by mentally ill people or aggressors um, for walking around with a mask. So I felt very conflicted because, you know, I had just be been to a country that has high infection numbers. But I might put myself in danger if I did that. And then 
five days later, um, I went to a lecture and it was completely full. Everybody was sitting there shoulder to shoulder and some people were coughing. Not many people were wearing <laughs> And I was like, let me get out of here. Um, and I came up stage that day, March 7th, and I've been mostly here. And I, you know, all my jobs were canceled. And I just have no reason to go back to Brooklyn right now. But of course New York was, you know, became a epicenter, like, a lot of things, um, you know, doors, elevator buttons, people were not accustomed to wearing them at all, people booted it, and, but, New York, you know, there has been a lot of things that have made everything so difficult in New York. You know, living in New York has become so expensive and crowded and stressful. And, you know, it's already go it's still going through the, a really difficult time. People are fighting for their lives and there are people who are working in the front line, risking their lives. But, yeah, for a place like New York. And people are, we are all forced to slow down. And as much as we hear all these horrible things on the news about you know, people saying horrible things to Asians and um, I think that we're I'm I'm finding myself to be a little bit more um little kinder and nicer and more gentle because I want them to be nicer and kinder <laughs> to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of bad coming out of this, but there's also going to be a lot of good coming out of this. Yeah. And that's what I'm hoping. Yeah. Um, that's interesting because um, you did the um, you wrote the book called Hip Revolution. Um, it was in Japanese, so I couldn't read it. But <laughs> um, but but what I understood is is that it was um, a post two thousand and eight um, reaction. To, well not reaction but observation to how the the fashion industry changed um due to the global financial crisis and there was a bigger focus on smaller brands making mm -hmm. artisan made pieces um but at the same time fast fashion continued <laughs> to to grow on this like 
insane scale where like you know they're producing so many clothes that that they can't possibly sell them all and a lot of these completely new brand new untouched clothes are going into landfill because they literally cannot um, sell them so it doesn't even make sense to me and you know they're making them this is like one of the biggest um, contributors in the industry to global warming like I know we have this optimism about reform due to a crisis yeah do you think the coronavirus will impact people and force change much more so than the 2008 promised to to Um, dude (laughs) heavy Uh, look and i think you know early 2000s i think we were all hopeful that this small idea small ideas can you know be a bigger idea Mm. if a lot of us are engaged in that kind of practice right that was the hope and then i think in places like new york um the gentrification made it very difficult and also like you pointed out um you know fast fashion pretty much swept through the whole um industry and changed people's behaviors the way pieces and did this insane amount of damage um now we're in the period where we are forced to slow down and i think we're at the point where like manufacturing business will have to change drastically i was initially hoping that you know because this has um pointed out that a lot of essential stuff have been outsourced to other countries and when it came to the shop we're not able to make things domestically and that has become a huge problem which you think lead to this idea that you want to manufacture but the economic um economical damage will be challenging because a lot of factories will be forced to close yeah and i really don't know or i can't really see how this is going to pan out i think that um a lot of people who have been working in the garment industry in um for our countries they might be there's a great danger that they might be hanging because a lot less company will be making mass production stuff Mm. right so the the people um the weakest 
will do quite chips, obviously. And, you know, this will magnify the, the, this grave inequality um, that has been around for really, like, really long time, but it really was never addressed in a way that it should be. And now this is the time to address it. Yeah. But I can't really say that the um, all these big companies will be do, doing the right thing mm. and protect their workers and somehow reduce the amount of produ- their production. And you know, transform themselves into a more sustainable, eco-conscious companies. That will have to happen. But I just don't know. Mm. Well, from what I've been reading, um, like the business of fashion, they did a really like in-depth look at the state of the fashion industry pre and post virus. I think like what's going on right now across all Mm. industries is like this kind of um, economic Darwinism where it's the survival of the fittest. So in the fashion industry, there were so many cracks in the path um, that were just getting like so many businesses were just just getting by by just kind of covering up their their flaws with this like fast paced um, cycle of the fashion calendar. Um, but now, you know, that everyone has forced, been forced to close their shop doors. There have been so many big companies like J. Crew filed for bankruptcy. Um, what was it? Was it J. C. Penny? Um, shut like completely. Yeah. Um, so many um, big fashion brands have just defaulted or, or filed for bankruptcy just because this um pandemic has just like finally um uncovered just melted all of their um foundation um which is great but then you have companies who are profiting so much from this pandemic like amazon um like you know then you have like all the technic companies like zoom who are just like growing like crazy and um but at the same time these companies are being held responsible for the way that they're treating their workers like you know the, on the 1st of May there was a big strike um to rally for the safety the safe working conditions for the essential workers in Amazon actually in France um Amazon France was forced to close down by the French um, government because um, they were seen to not actually be providing essential services and all the while um, like not treating their workers in a safe um, manner so I mean that's cool um, that I think a lot of I think a lot of businesses will disappear a lot of corporations will default and the governments will not have money to bail them out anymore as they did in 2008. Um, but there will still be some like big players who, who will be able to actually do well off this situation. 
(laughs) But um, if I could make any observation, it's um, if I look at Australia, because leading up to this crisis, Australia had the worst bushfires in history and it was so devastating that, and me as an Australian, I was able to see that people's consumer behavior changed very quickly because of this environmental disaster and people yeah became as you say as you found in new york people became a lot kinder to each other and people voiced their opinions on the flaws in government and in corporation um so therefore in this pandemic the prime minister scott morrison of australia has had to really prove to the australian people that he he is worthy of being the prime minister um but so i think it's interesting to look at australia as like this um small test but as as we all know every culture is so different we can't judge one country um success just um on face value um so yeah, but, yeah. yeah. To, um, but, to on that point, I think this is the biggest opportunity for people who work for big companies like yeah. Amazon to make sure they protect yeah. their workers. Um, also, about to spend our money with mm-hmm. companies that do the right thing in protecting the workers, but also paying them fair wages for, you know, um, risking their lives. And to making sure that our lives go as smoothly as possible, getting food, um, you know, getting shipments and all that stuff, because we still are being able to live our lives because of those people. And I think as consumers, the least we could do is to put our money in companies that protect their people. Mm. Yeah. Do you believe that corporations can regu- can be responsible for ethical practice or... Yeah. <laughs> You know, I think that the companies will have to have a sense of purpose, right? I think these companies that are newer companies, there are a small, you know, a wave of newer companies that really are founded on this idea to serve the community. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Mm. But the corporations, as we know it, um, the, especially public trading companies that serve stockholders, I do think that there's a fundamental flow in that structure. But at the same time, I I, I believe that even bigger companies are not stupid. So I think we do have a power to push them collectively 
um, towards the left, and I do have very romantic idea about consumer activism. <laughs> no oh. matter how many times I'm disappointed. That's our job, is to keep fighting this fight. Right. Oh, it's so tiring. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. But I think in terms of like, you know, environmentalism also, this is a great opportunity too, because, you know, this whole virus situation is proving that uh, fossil fuel is making people sick and more vulnerable to virus and respiratory diseases. Oh, learning this, how to, how this is affecting people's health. And it's being talked about, you know, we've been warned about this virus, not this particular virus, but the, the possibility of pandemic. And, you know, most of the world have been like, meh. You know, the same way that they have been reacting to this um, environmental crisis mm. as well. So I think this really is a test. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Speaking of um, reform and change um, and new economies, um, I want to talk about your book that you released last year, Let's <laughs> Talk About Marijuana, which I also couldn't read. <laughs> but I really am so curious yeah. about what it's about. Yeah, so basically, you know, marijuana is this plant that has a lot of medicinal values, and we all know this on this side of the world. But, you know, I've been living in this parallel world where I, when I'm in the United States, I realize I see the health benefits that people are getting from it. I see how it's saving people, people's lives. And I go home, it's this crazy criminal thing. And I never really, um, you know, thought about touching that sensitive subject because, you know, Japan has this law that prohibits its citizens to engage in Japan which only covers certain criminal activities, but possession of marijuana is definitely one of them. Mm. So there's this like legal risk. I'm also not allowed to advocate it, mm. but you know, when, when the state of Colorado decided to legalize marijuana completely, meaning recreationally on top of medical use of it. I thought that was a huge cultural shift. Mm. So I went to one of the magazines that I write for, Wire Japan, and said, let me do a story on this. And Wire Japan being a part of Condé Nast Japan, which is a, being a part of this huge Um, meaning that they're not Japanese, they let me write a story about yeah. it. 
when that came out, I was approached by a publisher asking me if I wanted to put out a book. Mm. So I had to say yes, because, you know, yeah. you don't want to say no to that yeah. kind of opportunity. Um, so I wrote a book about how it became illegal to begin with and how it became legalized. Not completely legalized yet in the United States, but in terms of, you know, the way people's perceptions have evolved and changed and there was this huge willpower on the on that part of people to legalize marijuana. Being a lot to back that up, back their claim up. So I wrote that and um you know it was seen as somewhat controversial. But it's a symbol of cultural difference, I think. And, you know, if you think about Asia as a whole, it's been very uptight over the history. Um, a lot of people say that's because of the um, opium war. Mm. You know, that's a really long time ago. Yeah. Um, but it's such an interesting topic in terms of you know if you look at Thailand it only made it illegal in the 70s oh so I didn't Thailand, know that yeah Whoa. Thailand didn't really join that party of war and drugs up until like mid 70s i think but before that you know it was practiced by some people um for medical reasons and then there's a whole history in asia um surrounding herbalism so it was something that like got ripped apart from asia in that craziness of war and drugs. And I was so impressed so quickly to allow the medical use of my woman. Mm. That was shocking. It came out of surprise, like Thailand legalizing marijuana for medical use last year um, and also allowing people people to grow six plants for personal use um yeah can sell them to the government right yeah i believe so like um i'm not super like tuned into like the legal like all the facts but friends have told me that last year they were testing by issuing people like a they released like a certain amount of these cards that allowed you to carry marijuana around and if and it was a very easy process to apply for these cards and yeah like people are allowed to grow up to six plants um and 
it's seen an industry um the the be- the beginnings of a mm-hmm. um a marijuana industry for um not only medical use for what, but also like even before all of these um, laws were passed, the hemp industry, the hemp for fabrics industry um, was like a big growing movement in Thailand as well. Probably alongside the natural dyeing movement, like Thais are pretty radical and they um, they embrace uh, change. And there was this big movement to go back to cottage industries and live a more natural life and um, so many friends moved out of the city to um, start weaving and dyeing industries like back in their hometowns Um, and I know people who have started um, new ventures across the border in Laos um, growing marijuana on a big scale Um, so like there's it's a very interesting time, but um, I think the government is just like trial and error, <laughs> just doing like a trial and error because of the industry can potentially employ so many people and provide like a, a really booming new economy for the region um, and can make, can attract many investors from overseas and uh, i think that could be very interesting um but yeah i'm excited to see how it plays out i think thailand's gonna position themselves as a leader and i was going to go to a marijuana conference Um, in august i don't think that's gonna happen i haven't gotten the well actually maybe like the lockdown has kind of loosened in the last Mm -hmm. week here and the economy here didn't come to a complete grinding halt but the question is like if you hold a conference and nobody can fly here to come then (laughs) then it's a bit pointless maybe they'll do an online conference who knows yeah that would be amazing yeah because yeah. I think that, that um, you know, Asian countries will have a hard time adjusting their loads. And I think Thailand um, can function as a successful yeah. example. Well, I don't want to get into this too deep, but um, the government who came into power because of the military coup um, has a very... Um, smooth process of passing laws. Right, 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 of course. <laughs> so it's one example of that sort of working out for the people. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. democracy has proven itself mm-hmm. to not be, not work in the way that we know it. So right. for people... I mean, look at us. Yeah. Look at us. like corruption is a given so if if a I mean I don't know like yeah I mean corruption and suppression from in this top down um, model pyramid model 
um, is now being questioned because of the internet and there's so much dialogue going on. I have so many conversations with like taxi drivers in Thailand from up country who are like so wise um, with their perception of how things really work that that I don't believe that people can be suppressed by lack of education anymore, um, yeah. which is really cool. Um, and this attitude of of having wealth and knowledge to suppress um, societies to work in the way you want it to work is will be a thing of the past very quickly, especially with in Thailand with the crazy expanding middle class. Um, but yeah, it's it's exciting. That's you don't hear that anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're talking about middle class. Yeah. Um, middle class is shrinking, which is a huge problem. Well, it, except for China and India, where the middle class, this crazy, huge, booming middle class has led way for... Um, all the low-cost carriers and like the consumption of um you know in thailand like this booming middle class is now enjoying travel is enjoying um fast food um yeah. not a great thing so but you know there's this huge the west doesn't understand that there's this huge um body of people Cons new consumers um, right. in Asia um, yeah. that are a force to be reckoned with as well. I wonder how the virus is going to change that landscape. Yeah, well, um, I think travel, post-virus travel will be um, completely different the yeah. the aviation and the tourism industry have been probably hit the hardest and yeah. i've heard that um there are literally only maybe 35 airlines in the world that will be able to continue after this um so, i'm not surprised yeah so so travel travel will be very different from how we know it um <laughs> will be very interesting um, yeah I'm for myself you know I'm sort of reflecting on the fact that the way I've been traveling for the last of years and I do one city for like you know two nights and I'll go to another city yeah. and another city and I'm realizing how much I've missed and you know, I wish I could do that. Mm. Yeah. Um, but you know, a lot of people are having this like internal conversations right now. Yeah. And uh, I think that it's a good chance for us to reflect on what troubles were to us and how they will be. You know, yeah. I think might be it might become more precious absolutely um, slash more expensive yeah 
and it might be gone in the past, but it might not necessarily be a bad thing for the world. Oh, for sure. Um, that is, hopefully, if there is an economy to go back to. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, well, let's leave it at there, Yumi. Thanks Aww. so much for have for being on the show. This is so oh, fun. I know. So yeah. good to talk. Yeah, let's do this again sometime. For sure. Well, um, if anyone wants to look you up, how do they how do they find you? Um, Yumiko Sakuma on Instagram. That's my handle on okay. Instagram. Cool. All right, everybody. Until next episode. See ya. Bye.